Ready? Born ready. of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm your host, Saba Long. Thank you for rocking with us. On tap today, a whole lot. Every week in politics in 2022 just seems to get crazier and crazier. And we've got another show lined up for you with a lot of hot stuff to talk about. So let's get right into it. Starting with local news, um, it is official. It's not your imagination. It really is official. Atlanta is full. Metro Atlanta is now the largest metro region in the entire southeast. That means we are even bigger, more populated than Miami. And we are now the eighth largest metro region in the entire country. Still don't have a beach. But uh, anyway, <laughs> Clayton County Beach. No, <laughs> <laughs> not. <laughs> so we netted in Metro Atlanta almost uh, just over or right around 450,000 residents between 2015 and 2020. That was a bigger growth, faster growth than all but Dallas and Houston. So we grew faster than other metros. The only two that outpaced us were Dallas and Houston, which is pretty wild. Um, And in the same vein of people moving to Atlanta, this week the Atlanta Fed announced that, that's the Federal Reserve of Atlanta, I should just be clear there. Uh, The Atlanta Fed announced that buying a home in Atlanta is now unaffordable. So just as a reminder, the federal government says a home is deemed affordable if it is no more than 30% of your household income. And so ATL and Metro ATL has a housing affordability problem. All right, let's do a legislative update. The session is on its way uh, of wrapping up. It's almost done. Let me highlight a couple of interesting bills uh, that you guys might be interested in. This first one, Keith, this is for you because I know you love electric vehicles. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago I was talking about Rivian. Uh, this is the electric car company that's going to be opening up a massive manufacturing plant in Georgia. So there's, but there was an effort to change the state law to allow Rivian to sell its vehicles directly to consumers. That law ended up getting postponed. That bill, uh, they didn't get it. Didn't go through crossover uh, day, but instead, the state senate said, since we didn't get the bill through, we'll create what's called a study committee to help us figure out how to move it forward. So, why is this a big deal? Why is this a thing? Uh, why it probably didn't make it through crossover day is. Um, really up to is the car dealers, right? So car dealerships don't like direct to consumer purchasing a cars because it cuts them out of the process. 
Um, so you already know that Georgia's investment in Rivian, as I mentioned before, is going to be probably the largest uh, investment in an economic development project that we have seen. If you might recall, when Atlanta was trying to get Amazon HQ2, that was a $2 billion projected economic development package. This is expected to be even bigger than that. So because it's going to be so big, I think there will probably be some way uh, to make sure that Rivian is indeed able to sell its cars to Georgians because we have, as a state, will have given them so much money that it would just make sense to go ahead and make sure that the people can purchase the cars if they want. And by the way, those cars are not cheap. I mean, they're sweet. They look really nice, but you're talking about sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 vehicles. I guess I need to look it up because I still don't understand what they mean by direct to consumers or are they saying... I couldn't get a car directly from Honda. I would have to go to the Honda dealership. Like So you you right now you have to purchase cars through a third party. All right? You're purchasing it through a dealer, you're purchasing it through Carvana, you know, one of those other things. And so what Rivian wants to be able to do is you basically go to rivian.com and purchase the car. But I thought Tesla. Yes, Tesla's. So Tesla has, so there's something unique, like Tesla has something that allows them. And I think Kia does as well, but the state has to allow that company to be able to do it. It's not like the default, you can do it if you want. The state has to allow it. And there was a Kia plant. Right. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) All right, another um, interesting bill that is, it looks like it's going to pass, and that's why I'm bringing this up. Um, It is a bill that will help college students by providing up to $2,500 in grant funding. And this funding is particularly for folks who are just about to finish their uh, college, finish their degree. And it's, it's kind of a... There's a technical term for it, but it's basically a program to help make sure that you're not dropping out of college and you only have a few credits left. And the reason you're dropping out is for financial and not being able to afford it. So Georgia is um, one of the few states, only two states in the entire country that do not have, that does not have a need-based state aid program, right? We have hope the Georgia Hope Scholarship, but that is not needs-based. And so the idea is that this bill passing and this $2,500 grant funding will be the start of, you know, possibly putting together a needs-based program. I I like this. I like this. Um, I tried to do something like this when I came a couple years ago because I had enough credits to be a teacher. I had my math degree, but I wanted to be a teacher. But there was no grant money available for me to just, hey, I just did a couple classes. Right. They're like, nah, we want you to enroll and get a full scholarship. So this this is nice. This yeah, is, this is a good one. And I I, this, this should be, a, I didn't check to see, but this should be a bipartisan bill. Mm-hmm. This seems like something Republicans and Democrats can get behind. I think this is something they could use to uh, increase that teacher base. That they right. Need. All those right. teachers, did, like this would help with that. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the to take this to the next level, you could say 
okay, we're doing $2,500, up to $2,500 in grant funding, but if you are getting a degree in these five things, right, and those are things that the state knows there aren't enough people qualified to do that work, then maybe giving them an extra something on top just to incentivize them to finish because there's a need for them in the marketplace. And I hope they can use this with uh, those online degree uh, I scholarships. I think so. I mean, this as long as it is a state, I, I think for this bill, I think it's as long as it's a state um, college. This is also um, allowed for folks that are in um, trade schools. So if you're part of like Georgia Piedmont Technical College, which has a lot of great trade programs, you would qualify for this too. And that's important that it's not just for white collar uh, jobs. Um, another uh, thing, oh, this is, there was, it's called a completion grant. I knew there was some technical term for it. Um, another thing on the Georgia front, if you didn't hear it this weekend, the Trump train was in town. Uh, Donald Trump was in a place called Commerce, Georgia, and he had um, a rally that was allegedly pretty small compared to previous Georgia rallies. Uh, and this was for all of his hand-picked candidates. We've talked about David Perdue, who's primarying Governor Brian Kemp, uh, Herschel Walker, who is running for Senate. And if he wins, he would be going up against uh, Senator uh, Raphael Warnock. So ahead of Trump's visit, David Perdue went on a conservative radio uh, talk show, and he repeated what we all know as the big lie, that the election was stolen from Trump. Uh, he also said that he, being David Perdue, was also a victim of, quote-unquote, election fraud, and that his election was also stolen from him. Now, this is 2022. That, prime, that runoff election was in January of 2021. So you are now saying that your election was also stolen from you? Like, come on, man. Uh, just as a reminder, Ossoff beat Purdue by more than 55,000 votes. Um, and then just, you know, the runoff election in 2021 was just insane. There was a lot of energy because it had been weeks, a few weeks since we realized that Trump indeed uh, was going to lose or had lost. Uh, and then Trump basically suppressed Republican votes by pushing this narrative that the election was stolen from him. So it wasn't that the election was stolen. It was that he forced his own failure. Uh, so take a listen to what Purdue said on this radio show. Look, the energy level is still up in Georgia. Most people in Georgia know that something untoward happened in, in uh, November 2020. In fact, I'll just say it, Brian. Uh, in my election, the president's election, uh, they were stolen. Uh, the evidence is compelling now. Uh, not the hyperbole that you saw come out right after the election by people from out of the state, but just the court case that uh, we saw last year. The court ruled in that case against Fulton County that the evidence was compelling, and the judge ruled to unseal the, the ballots in Fulton County. He later dismissed that case, Brian, as you have reported, uh, because he said that voters, if you can believe it, voters do not have legal standing when, when it comes to a fraud civil case. Well, I want, I've refiled that suit now, and I want to find out if a candidate has legal standing. And if, it do, if they do, then I'm going to be, I think, we'll be able to get the judge to unseal those ballots. But we have plenty of facts coming out right now. 
He said, we have plenty of facts coming out right now. Um, okay. So Governor Brian Kemp is beating Purdue in the polls. He's beating Purdue in fundraising. Um, and when Kemp ran for governor in 2018, it was the Trump endorsement that shot Kemp to the top, right? So it's possible that Trump's endorsement of Purdue is actually what will keep Kemp in the governor's seat. Uh, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's also a Republican, he is not seeking re-election. He had this to say about the Trump visit um, and, in general, the 2022 governor's race, and I quote, Georgians have a clear choice. Continue with the current conservative leadership of Brian Kemp or turn the keys over to the most left-wing governor ever, Stacey Abrams. I don't know if I would think of her as the most left-wing, but Duncan has been pushing something that he's calling GOP 2.0. And I think I've talked about this before. He is um, really adamant about the party splitting away from Trump uh, and reframing and, and, you know, bringing back its original identity as a conservative pro-family values, um, you know, sensible party. Uh, So he just released a video ad about GOP 2.0. Take a listen. Inflation at a 40-year high, open borders, national security threats, But some politicians would rather talk about conspiracy theories and past losses, letting liberal extremists take us in the wrong direction, a mistake our country simply can't afford. We must focus on the future and rebuild our party. But I'm not alone in believing there's a better way forward. A conservative vision is needed now more than ever. It's time for GOP 2.0. I would love to hear your thoughts about GOP 2.0. What would a GOP 2.0 mean for you if you're a conservative? Or if you're a Democrat, what would you like to see a GOP 2.0 be? If you are someone who, you know, is not necessarily... Uh, not what doesn't identify as a Republican, but would maybe want to see a Republican Party that's very different from what we are seeing today. Would love to hear your thoughts, whether you're left, right, middle, Green Party, Red Party, Blue Party, any party. Uh, so we're going to try something out new here. So I want you to, if you look in the description of the show, There's a link, it says voice notes. So just click that link, leave a voice note, and we'll play it in next week's episode. So speaking of elections and kind of, you know, what the future of the parties and what America could look like, um, a couple of folks are floating the idea of universal voting. So the idea here is that Just like if you're an American citizen, you are required to participate in jury duty, they believe that you should also be required to vote. Now, Australia already has this. Uh, So in Australia, if you don't vote in an election, you have to pay a $15 fine. I think there are a couple ways to get around it, but broadly, voter participation in Australia is insanely high, like in the uh, high 80s, uh, a percentage of participation. So universal voting is is an an interesting idea. I think not only do we want people to vote, but the other 
equally important part is that you understand what's on the ballot. Who are the people that are running? Do they align with your values and your beliefs? And you're not just checking a box just because you're being told you have to check a box. All right, next on the list, of course, we're going to talk about uh, last week's Supreme Court hearings. We briefly talked about it last week. I think that was we taped on the first day of the hearings. And so now everything is over. Uh, the Supreme Court hearings, of course, this is for Kentaji Brown Jackson. If approved by the Senate, she will be the first black female Supreme Court justice. So what I want to do is just kind of take a, a look back and just provide an overview uh, for folks who may not understand or know the confirmation process. So what does it mean to be nominated to be a Supreme Court justice and what, what does all that look like? So the first thing that happens is obviously a justice on the Supreme Court either retires or passes away. Uh, and then the president will work with his staff and others in his party to put together a short list of replacement candidates. This is usually, you know, pretty top secret, pretty exclusive, uh, and the potential candidates are, will go through a very intense vetting process. They'll find out, you know, that one time that you were late on your bills, they'll find out um, if you did or did not, you know, commit any, um, if you did or did not do anything illegal, uh, they'll look through your family background. I mean, no stone is left unturned. They review every single thing about you. Uh, the next thing that happens is the president will consult with senators before making the announcement publicly. When that announcement is made, the nomination goes to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so that committee takes about a month on average to look through the paperwork of the nominee, review files, review FBI records, all of that. Then the Senate Judiciary Committee will hold hearings. That's what we heard last week were the hearings. So the nominee will go through, uh, you know, two to three days of testimony. And then the committee will also hear testimony for or against the nominee. Then the next thing that happens is the, the Judiciary Committee will then vote on the nominee. Uh, that could be either a recommendation or a rejection. Uh, and then if it's uh, reject it, it says, you know, we, we Judiciary Committee do not recommend this candidate. If the person is approved or recommended, then it goes to the entire Senate. And then the full Senate will then, that's 100 people, will then debate the, the nomination. And then the final thing is when the debate ends, the Senate will then vote on the nomination. And a simple majority of the senators uh, present are required to vote yes or no, right? So you only need, well, you need 50 votes in the affirmative and you need the vice president in the, in the case that it is indeed a tie will break the deciding vote. Uh, you might recall that uh, Democrats in particular are pushing to have at least some Republican support because they want it there. They want this to be bipartisan and not something where, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris would have to come and break the tie. Now, the, the only president who served at least one full term and never got a chance to nominate a Supreme Court justice was Georgia's own Jimmy Carter. So it's obviously not a guarantee that a president's pick will be approved, 
Uh, in fact, about a quarter of Supreme Court nominees over the entirety of the court were ultimately not confirmed. Uh, so here's what Kintaji Brown Jackson's confirmation process looked like. So Monday, she had uh, there were opening statements. So of the Judiciary Committee, there are 22 committee members. 11 of them are Democrats. 11 of them are Republicans. And each committee member had 10 minutes for an opening statement. And then Judge Jackson also had a 10-minute opening statement. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, these were the days that we probably saw a lot of the political fireworks. She was questioned by the committee. So Tuesday, members had 20 minutes each to question her. And then on Wednesday, the committee members would ask follow-up questions. And then they met in a closed session to discuss her FBI background investigation. And that is something that's perfunctory. It happens for every nominee. And then Thursday was the day that we saw witness testimony. So Judge Jackson had about 22 hours of testimony over a two-day period, which is pretty doggone exhausting. Um, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who was probably the most controversial pick since Clarence Thomas, I would say, uh, was questioned for 48 hours. And Clarence Thomas, who I just mentioned, was questioned for 20 hours. Now, one of the things Republicans repeatedly brought up in this hearing is that they felt that she was soft on crime and in particular that she gave lenient, lenient sentences to child porn offenders. Uh, but the co-lead of the American Bar Association, uh, they did a review of Judge Jackson as they do every nominee, uh, and they said this, and I quote, Notably, no judge, defense counsel, or prosecutor expressed any concern in this regard, and they uniformly rejected any accusations of bias. So, hearing all of that, what's next for Judge Jackson? Uh, the, Supreme, uh, the GOP senators said that they will not boycott her nomination uh, and that they will indeed allow it to go to a committee vote but they are pushing the vote back a week. So instead of voting this week, they're gonna vote April 4th on whether or not they will send her nomination to the Senate. And because, as I mentioned before, there are 11 Democrats and 11 Republicans, it could end up being a tie vote. And if that happens, Democrats will file what's called a discharge petition. And that is basically a floor vote of the Senate to bring the nomination forward. So that means that uh, Senate Majority Leader, or yeah, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, so he could then take all the procedural steps to then have an April 5th uh, possible vote to confirm her. So it's like a lot of little maneuvers that will have to take place. Um, to keep this as bipartisan as as easy as possible they really want at least one republican to vote right they want one republican to vote on the judiciary committee and at least one republican to vote in the entire senate um but i that's going to be a tall order i mean there's there's possible that a two or three of them are considering it um one person who's on the judiciary committee who you would think in normal times would at least vote for her to get out of the committee is Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. 
He had previously voted for her nomination to the D.C. Circuit Court, and the only thing changing here is that she's now in the running for Supreme Court. But Lindsey Graham said he is definitely not voting for her. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll update you all next week on what happens with likely the first black female Supreme Court Justice, Kentaji Brown-Jackson. Okay, one of the craziest stories of the week has got to be about someone you may have never heard about. Her name is Virginia, but she goes by Jenny Thomas. She is a conservative activist and the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. <laughs> so Jenny is, she's been out of pocket. So let me tell you <laughs> what she did. Uh, she's uber conservative and uh, she was at the January 6th uh, riot, whatever you want to call it, that was at the Capitol. Uh, and she repeatedly pressed the White House chief of staff at the time, Mark Meadows. This is, again, this was when Trump was still in office. He, she really pressed Mark Meadows in text messages uh, saying that he should not uh, relent and that he needed to do everything possible to overturn the election results and keep Trump in office. So I'm actually going to read uh, what some of her texts to him were. This was a text on November 24th. So clearly well after the fact, we knew that Trump had lost the election. And she says this, and I quote, actually, this is from November 10th. The first message I'm going to read to you is from November 10th. Uh, she says to Mark Meadows, help this great president stand firm, Mark, three exclamation marks. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice, the majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. Again, this is the wife of a Supreme Court justice. Um, another text, this is one that Mark Meadows wrote back to her on November 24th. This is a fight of good versus evil. This is Meadows again. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. And then Jenny Thomas replies, Thank you, exclamation point, exclamation point. Needed that, that, this, plus a conversation with my best friend just now. I will try to keep holding on. America is worth it. Now, why this is a big deal is because this phrase, best friend. There's speculation that the person she's talking about is actually her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. <laughs> they have repeatedly referred to each other in public as their best friend. Now, how we even know about these messages, and there are likely more, but how we know about these is because Initially, Meadows decided to cooperate with the bipartisan January 6th investigative committee, and that included turning over tons of messages. But then he stopped, um, and I'm trying to recall what happened, but he stopped uh, cooperating. And so who knows uh, what's next or, or what messages are out there that we just don't know about. So 
I mean, if you read through her messages, and again, this were just two that I, I read you. Um, it sounds like the messages of someone who literally spends all day long watching far right wing news. And I don't mean just Fox News. I mean, far right wing news. So some conservative and liberal legal scholars have come out and said, Judge, Judge Clarence Thomas needs to recuse himself from any cases uh, related to the January 6th insurrection because his wife was so clearly um, biased about this um, and that uh, he should also recuse him, himself from any cases related to the 2022 or excuse me to the 2020 election. And I, I mentioned this maybe two or three episodes before. Now all judges are subject to a code of judicial ethics with the exception of the Supreme Court, which makes absolutely zero sense. Dang. So this could get really, really ugly, um, especially, and it seems like they're probably going to do it, if the January 6th committee calls on Jenny Thomas to testify. And, and then that would mean uncovering even more uh, messages and texts and conversations. Another related thing to this and why this is all, you know, coming to a head is uh, literally as we're taping this, it just came out that a federal judge has found Trump that he most likely committed crimes about the 2020 election. And this was about um, Trump trying to get Pence to upend the certification process and that, of course, is what led to uh, the riots that we saw um, at, at the Hill. So a federal, I'm going to read this little blurb from the uh, New York Times. A federal judge ruled that former President Donald J. Trump and a lawyer who advised him on how to overturn the 22 elections most likely committed felonies, including obstructing the work of Congress and conspiring to defraud the United States. Uh, and uh, this is what the judge uh, says in his ruling. The illegality of the plan was obvious. Our nation was founded on the peaceful trans transition of power, epitomized by George Washington laying down his sword to make way for democratic elections. Ignoring this history, President Trump vigorously campaigned for the vice president to single-handedly determine the results of the 2020 election. So more will come out on that. Uh, but again, this helps explain why the Jenny Thomas news is so big and why there's a push for Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from anything related to these. All right, we are at the end of the show. Our final bit, party starters and party poopers. So why don't we start with the party poopers and so we can end on a high note. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. <laughs> this week's party poopers uh, goes to the DC trucker um, group. I don't know if you all remember hearing in Canada where you had the truckers that shut down Ottawa. Well, a group of truckers attempted to shut down DC um, 
and they were there for three weeks and they just never gained any traction. They basically wasted their time. They wasted gas because they started this when gas was super high. Um, and they were protesting things like mask mandates, which aren't even in place anymore, broadly speaking, across the country. And so I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but it certainly was a dud, to say the least. Exactly. Let's get it started in Uh, party starter. Uh, this is someone local. Um, you may not have heard of him, uh, but he is affectionately known as the Dean of the House, uh, Democrat and State Representative Calvin Smyrie. Uh, Calvin Smyrie is one of the oldest serving members of the House, and he is one of the top political bro- power brokers in the state. This is his last legislative session. Because President Biden has tapped him to become ambassador to the Dominican Republic, which is not a bad gig. Uh, So take a listen to a clip from an interview that he just did with Georgia Public Broadcasting. And it also features Republican Speaker David Ralston. Is who gets what, when, where and how. And uh, with that in mind, I've always been trying to be a, a results person, uh, but, but at the same time, allow principle over politics. And, and, and to me, that formula has been very, very successful to me. And, and people know, to know me know that, that I love politics, but I'm principled at the same time. So with that in mind, I, I try my best to, uh, to continue to build coalitions. And I tell people all the time, if you want to have a great career in politics, the key word is relationships. Uh, relationships matter. Some of the young lawmakers have come in, and they always say... He's a statesman. He truly is. You know, he... People will never know the the times that he and I interact on issues behind the scenes. Um, but we have, and, and, and he has been a rock for me to kind of lean on. Um, and um, uh, he has such institutional knowledge. And, you know, and when I hear people talk about term limits, who could want a system that would deny you a Calvin Smyre? Not me. I'm, I'm very, very happy for him. And I often tell him, I said, you know, I know that there was a speaker here that served, you served with longer than me, but there's not been a speaker here that's loved you as much or relied on you as much as I have. Wow. I've had a long career. And um, I've had a lot of friendships along the way. And, um, but I've been truly, truly blessed. And um, 
Uh, David Ralston is a, has been a true friend to me. And uh, politics aside, um, uh, he's entrusted me. He's trusted me in many, many arenas as it relates to the political process. And a lot of good we've done together. I, I can't tell you um, the times we spent together on, on transportation, transportation funded, and transit. It reminded me of my times with Tom Murphy on the World Congress Center, on MARTA, and on the Georgia Dome of the Falcons. Those are major heavy lift items. And, um, and that right there is truly um, heartfelt, and, uh, and I'm deeply, deeply appreciative of our friendship and our work working relationship, although we're from different parties. So congrats to the Dean of the House, Calvin Smyrie, on uh, this will be his last legislative session before he sails off into the sunset on the sunny uh, blue beaches, or water rather, and sunny beaches of the DR. Um, if you paid attention to Georgia politics, those are two names that you know, um, and in light of all of the partisan bickering that we see, it is nice to see, um, you know, an older black man and an older white man of two different parties be able to come together um, and show mutual respect for each other. So that is today's show. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Um, we know next week is going to be just as hot politically, so we'll have the heat for you. Come on back.